Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the Liberals blast Aaron O'Toole for allowing a free vote on an abortion bill. As the leader of the Conservative Party, he has allowed this dangerous bill to move forward during an exceptionally difficult time for Canadian women. This pandemic is threatening hard-won gains women have made in my lifetime. Marc Garneau says Canada is not ready to open the border with the United States. It's the Americans who are pushing for reopening more than more than the Canadians. And I think it is possible that we might see the Americans lifting restrictions and them not being reciprocated for at least a month or two. Ontario puts an end to hope that school might be back in session before summer. I have to announce that schools will not be returning for in-class learning until the fall. I know this is difficult, very difficult news. It was a hard choice to make, but I will not, and I repeat, I will not take unnecessary risks with our children right now. It's Thursday, June the 3rd. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thank you for being with us today. Morning, Mark. So yesterday in the House of Commons, uh, Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader, voted against a bill that would have restricted certain abortions, but a majority of conservative MPs voted in favor of it. And the liberals, of course, tried to use this as uh, as a weapon against Aaron O'Toole and his leadership, uh, saying that he should not have allowed a free vote on this issue. Um, What do you make of uh, this issue that keeps surfacing for the conservatives? Well, it's entirely partisan and political from the from uh, the Liberal Party's point of view. Um, this is the seventh time since 2007 that an abortion-related bill, private member's bill has come before the House. Every time it's been defeated by the majority. That is the settled will of the majority of Canadians, I think it's fair to say. But this is, you know, O'Toole has made clear that this is not something he's going to, going to act on. It's, he's been far clearer, I think, than, than his predecessor, Andrew Scheer, was. And yet the Liberal Party has consistently used this as a, a wedge, suggesting that, uh, that O'Toole is at the mercy of uh, his caucus, that he will be forced to act upon it if he became Prime Minister. And I think as worrying as... Uh, as the vote coming forward, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm pro-choice. I don't agree with this, uh, with restricting um, abortion in the way that some of the, the proponents would like to. Uh, this bill was slightly different, and then it was about sex selection of abortion. Those types of bills have tended to, to uh, win the support of even people who are uh, pro-choice because sex selection of abortion is obviously seen as uh, something that is uh, is pretty horrendous. I mean, there are MPs, including Liberals, who don't support sex-selective abortion, but but obviously, uh, which is why the vote came in at, um, uh, I think it was 248 to 82, and, there were, and obviously all of those 82, I think barring Derek Sloan, all of them were Conservatives. But my point in this is the, the Liberal Party's reaction to it. Now, Melanie Jolie, the... Uh, the official languages minister was sent out to to talk about this. And she said it's not good enough for O'Toole to say personally that he would not vote in favour of the bill. She said, for our rights to be safe, we need to curb all policies that attempt to control women's bodies. Now, what that seems to suggest to me is that individual MPs would have to run their 
suggested private members' bills passed some kind of Liberal committee before they were allowed to be submitted to the House. Um, you know, in a similar fashion to the way the, the um, summer jobs programme a couple of years ago, people who applied for taxpayers' money had to attest that they were not in favour of abortion. That seems to me to be a, 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 an overly restrictive type of overreach by the government. You know, private uh, private members are allowed to bring forward whatever it is that they feel should be brought up. That's the way the House of Commons works. The House then votes on it, and you know, on seven occasions since 2007, the House has rejected any kind of restriction on abortion. And I think that uh, I hope that people see through the uh, the government's tactics on this because it's clear that an O'Toole government would not bring forward legislation. And I, I just find what Jolie said more offensive than the proponent of the bill. Hmm. Very interesting. All right, let's turn to where we stand on uh, reopening as uh, the numbers come down in many parts of the province, the rate of infection and so on. Um, the Ontario uh, announced yesterday that kids will not be going back to school before summer. It's, it's getting near the end of the school year anyway. Uh, Marc Arnaud said Canada is not ready to reopen the border with the United States, although that appears uh, to be closer than ever before. So uh, the numbers are coming down, but but I think people are, are still, by and large, pretty restricted in their movements. So wh- what do you think about where we stand right now? Well, Garneau acknowledged that people are becoming impatient, and that includes um, members of his own caucus. There was a, a, a letter signed by two Liberal MPs and uh, an American congressman calling for the border to reopen. And I think that we're going to see more and more of that. But I don't think we're going to see the border reopening on June 22nd when when the current uh, restrictions end. I do think that they'll be, they'll be uh, renewed for at least another month, simply because of the vaccination rates. You know, we have 58% of Canadians have received one dose of the vaccine, but only 5.8% are fully vaccinated. In the U.S., the rates are 51% and 41%. And it's the Americans who are pushing for a reopening more than more than the Canadians. And I think it is possible that we might see the Americans lifting restrictions and them not being reciprocated for at least a month or two. So it may be possible that Canadians can go into the U.S., but I think that, um, you know, given what Ford said on, on schools, there are going to be people, and the, the emergence of new variants, there is going to be a real uh, close eye kept on uh, infection rates and on vaccination rates. And that might take another few weeks before uh, before it gets to a level where governments at all levels are uh, are willing to, uh, to open that border. Mm. Now, speaking of uh, leaving the country, the Prime Minister is going to be traveling to the G7 summit. He will be leaving Canada to do that. Um, and uh, there's, there's a lot of talk around whether he's going to uh, raise with Joe Biden, the U.S. president, the plight of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. What are you hearing about that? Well, I gather he will. I mean, the, the two men are going to meet for the first time in person. That allows a more casual conversation than than has been possible on, on these uh, scheduled uh, Zoom calls, I guess they are. I wrote about that today. I, I think, though, that Canada's 
position has become un- untenable on this. I mean, we are seeing the emergence of an American-China policy. And the Americans have got their own concerns with China. Joe Biden has been very sympathetic to to the case of the two Michaels. He said they would be treated like U.S. citizens. And the matter was raised by the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor when they met Chinese officials in Alaska earlier this year. It is something on which the Americans are sympathetic. But at the same time, you know, I think there was some hope that when Biden came in, there would be a deal done over Meng, that that uh, Madam Meng, the, the uh, Huawei executive, was being, uh, the Americans are seeking to extradite t- to the U.S. There was the hopes, I think, that there would be some kind of deferred prosecution agreement where Meng would plead guilty to some charge and then be uh, released, allowed to go back home. That has not happened. Apparently, the Department of Justice is very keen to still to extradite her. I guess Biden has now uh, acknowledged that and, and accepted that. So I don't think Canada can now rely on Biden's good graces to raise this with President Xi Jinping when they meet. And I think Canada should now start uh, being far more active in trying to release the two Michaels itself. And that might mean the intervention of the Justice Minister in the Meng case. He is... His jurisdiction includes the Extradition Act, which is far more uh, an act of diplomacy than it is of law. He can intervene at any time and have those charges dropped, allow her to be sent home and negotiate the return of the two Michaels. I I am not an apologist for China. I'm not even sympathetic to China. But I do think that we should be able to cooperate with the Chinese when our interests overlap. And right now, our interests are that we want our two citizens back and they want their citizens back. Those two guys have been in prison for 900 days now. And anybody who takes a close look at the main case, there is new evidence going to be be revealed uh, by the defence. They've they've requested documents from HSBC that will be released, uh, shared with the defence, with the uh, prosecution in June. That might be an opportunity for the Minister of Justice to get involved if HSBC says there was no loss to us. Hmm. The, the case thing then goes back before a judge in August. The judge will will eventually, probably by the end of this year, rule on whether there was uh, whether there is a case for Meng to answer, whether the U.S. is in breach of international law because this case features a Chinese citizen who was presenting to a British bank in Hong Kong. The defence argues, well, where's the U.S. case? And the, the, the judge will also argue about, uh, will take a look at whether HSBC actually lost anything, right. whether there was a material loss. In, in all of those cases, and when it goes to the minister, the defence has the right of appeal, and ultimately has the right of appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. That whole process, it seems to me that she will be released by one court or another, whether by the current court, the British BC Supreme Court, by the Court of Appeal, or by the Supreme Court of Canada. At some point in that process, it seems that one court or another will release her. That process could take years. All the while, the two Michaels are incarcerated. It seems to me the Justice Minister should now intervene. All right. We'll see where things go. And, and if uh, Trudeau and, and Biden uh, make any progress on that uh, at the G7 summit. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. It is not enough for Justin Trudeau to say that he shares his condolences. 
when he is currently fighting Indigenous kids in court. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Sri Patakar argues that Kamloops residential school discovery challenges the myth of the good Canadian again. Patakar writes, The ability to be moved by Indigenous trauma allows us to give ourselves a moral license to ignore ongoing colonial atrocities. Where is our outrage? Where are our letters flooding MPs' offices asking the government to stop fighting a human rights ruling to compensate First Nations children, to stop fighting residential school survivors? If we continue to behave as if Indigenous children matter less than our own, how different are we really from who we've always been? In the National Post, Terry Glavin argues Canadians have known about unmarked residential school graves for years. They just keep forgetting. Glavin writes, For Indigenous people, the legacy of the schools isn't just history. It remains an open wound, and everybody else seems doomed to discover the horrors of those institutions over and over again, forgetting, remembering, and then forgetting again. As for reconciliation, Canadians are clearly as up to it as they've ever been, as the outpouring of empathy and solidarity over the past few days has made plain. But justice is another thing altogether. At iPolitics, Errol Mendez considers how Quebec's amendment could sever ties with Canada. Mendez writes, It's dismaying that parliamentarians failed to understand that the unilateral entrenchment of Quebecers as a nation could also affect how the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and other parts of the Constitution could be interpreted. No previous use of Section 45 by a province has attempted to modify or insert clauses into the Constitution of Canada. If Quebec is successful with this form of unilateral amendment of the Constitution, does it become a contagious precedent for it and other provinces to start the deconfederation of the country? Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. A parliamentary committee will be holding hearings today on an issue which could not be more timely. The federal government's response to the tragic legacy of the residential school system and the children who died in that system. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark this morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, the House of Commons Committee on Indigenous and Northern Affairs will hear from witnesses testifying on how the government has responded to recommendations from Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Six years ago, the Commission made specific recommendations on what the federal government should do to address the historical wrongs and to help the families and communities of those who died in the residential school system. Those recommendations included drawing up maps of the location of deceased children, setting up appropriate ceremonies, markers, and reburials, and establishing an ongoing process to document and protect cemeteries and other sites where children may have been buried. Yesterday, Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Carolyn Bennett said that some progress had been made and she invited Indigenous communities across the country to now apply to find out how to access a remaining $27 million in funding. But critics say the government action has been too slow, too timid, and bound up in bureaucracy. The committee today will hear from both senior departmental officials as well as the heads of the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will appear at a virtual meeting with volunteers from the Faster Together initiative to thank them for their work and efforts to encourage the uptake of COVID-19 vaccinations. The Prime Minister will be joined by the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Carolyn Bennett, and participate in a virtual event for the launch of the National Action Plan on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And the Prime Minister will chair the Cabinet meeting. 
Natural Resources Minister Seamus O'Regan will make a virtual announcement about electric vehicle infrastructure. Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibot will speak at a virtual event on the upcoming federal consultations for the next agricultural policy framework. And the Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs and International Trade will hear from Minister of International Development Karina Gould on Canada's international response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, June the 3rd. Tune in to Primetime Politics every evening on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.